All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So what is this show you're watching uh, lately that you refer to affectionately as My Smut? Uh, it's it's Love is Blind, and I do want to clarify that that is not my phrase. That is a co-opted phrase. Okay. I didn't come up with that, but right. it is smut. And Love is Blind is the one where they go into the pods and they get to know each other before seeing each other, and then they decide if they want to get married. Uh, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate all shows like that. So mm-hmm. when you're watching them, you become very invested in it. I'll putter about the kitchen, you know, usually making a sandwich mm-hmm. or, or, or something, mm-hmm. And uh, listening to you blurt things out at the TV screen and at me from time to time, like I'm watching it, which which I don't. I do. I struggle. I I don't enjoy the shows. Um, It's a thing that I started watching when I was staying up all night with Haggis and I put it on because I didn't have to like pay attention and (laughs) uh, it, you know, but then I got looped into it and yeah, no, I don't enjoy it. (laughs) <laughs> but you, you still watch well, it. Well, I have to finish it. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. And uh, they're at the point now where they're all cheating on each other, which really is from episode one on, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Well, no, because none of them are in relationships. I think that you're thinking of the ultimatum. Oh, okay. Um, and that's totally fine to get them confused. Yeah, you were you were binging that for a while, too. So We but, had a house guest who wanted to watch it. It wasn't my fault. I just remember being in the kitchen and you yelling to me some reassuring words. And uh, I wrote them down because I wanted to remember them. You said, uh, sweetie, just so you know, I will never cheat on you. I'm more likely to kill you than cheat on you. That's, I mean, I was probably overtired and maybe a little out of it, but not, that's not inaccurate. Yeah. I wish that that had been part of your wedding vows <laughs> when we got married, because that's beautiful. Not that we didn't have some unique wedding vows. <laughs> yeah. Let's be real. Yeah, very, very unique wedding vows. Uh, referencing 
a part-time worker at the town office just because we liked his name. And a syndicated morning talk show. It's how we roll and always have. You also said I was like drinking cold water after being dehydrated. So yeah, yeah. that was nice. It was a poetic moment. It was very sweet. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about geniuses today. Now, Elon Musk, of course, is believed by some to have an IQ of about 150, which is close to the estimated IQ of great scientists like Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. They were thought to have IQs somewhere in the area of 160. Genius is a word that's often thrown around. Sometimes, though, it, it does find its truest embodiment. And uh, that was the case with a guy named William James Sidis. Ever hear of him? I don't think so. Yeah, that's the thing. This guy had a projected IQ soaring between... Now, remember, again, Einstein, 160-ish, mm -hmm. right? Um, this guy's IQ was somewhere between 210 and 250. What? Yeah, he eclipsed even luminaries like Einstein and Hawking. Yet despite his brilliant mind, nobody knows who he is. And he kind of wanted it that way. He was born on a spring day, April 1st, 1898, in New York City, the son of uh, Russian immigrants. He showcased some pretty early prestigious intellect. Uh, for example, he was reading newspapers before his second birthday. Wow. Now, his parents, they had a lot to do with this. They were both very, very intelligent people and really encouraged this. His mother was a distinguished physician, and his father, Boris, uh, contributed immensely to psychopathology. Uh, they had great plans for their young boy. Boris is our landlord's name. You don't hear the name Boris enough anymore. You really don't. The Sidis household was a haven for learning. Sarah, the mother, uh, flooded young William's world with books and maps trying to spark some um, some intellectual curiosity. Boris, on the other hand, engaged his young son in spirited debates covering advanced subjects like psychology. And it might sound like it was an intellectual paradise, but for William, this intensity was a double-edged sword. He felt confined, and his relationship with his parents was extremely strained. He felt like he had a lot to live up to. It sounds that way. And as the years passed, William's accomplishments grew even more staggering. By eight years old, eight years old, he was fluent in eight languages. Whoa. From Greek to Russian. Now, when I was eight years old, <sighs> I was sticking my gum under the desk at school. Yeah. And as an adult, I am struggling with basic Spanish. I struggle with basic English. <laughs> so he spoke eight languages fluently, but that wasn't enough. He made his own language up. Um, he called it Vendergood. Well, most eight or nine-year-olds are um, struggling with basic arithmetic, but Sidis was granted admission to Harvard. What? At, at nine. But due to his tender age, he had to bide his time, so he had to wait two years to get. They said, yeah, you can get in, but, you know, you have to be um, 11. So did, did he have to, like, go to campus and go to classes on campus? Yeah. I don't know. That seems like a publicity thing rather than a this is for the good of the kid thing. Well, publicity was a big part of, of his life, and uh, the press hounded him all of the time. 
From the time that William was accepted into Harvard to the time that he actually began attending, between the ages of 9 and 11, to Mm -hmm. bide his time, he immersed himself in mathematics at Tufts University, where he spent his time critiquing Einstein's theory of relativity. Yeah, that makes sense. You just kill some time taking university-level classes at 9. So... Finally, at 11, he started at Harvard. There he studied stuff uh, that even adults found complicated, like fourth dimensional bodies, even uh, top minds of the time, like physicist Daniel F. Comstock, were just blown away by this kid. This kid was teaching Comstock's lecture. But it wasn't all roses at Harvard for Sidis. Even though he was a genius, he was still a kid. And he got teased a lot because he was better than everyone. And usually that's the way it goes. That just seems like such an unreal thing to me for college age people to tease an 11 year old. I feel embarrassed for them. I don't even know who they are, but I am embarrassed for you. Yeah, they've been dead for decades now though, so. Okay, well that's good. Let it go. (laughs) Um, And in addition to being teased a lot, the media was always on his case. Can you imagine being 12, 13 years old, attending Harvard, paparazzi following you everywhere because you're just super smart. Upon graduating from Harvard at the remarkable age of 16 and with such an extraordinary intellect and early academic achievements, society expected him to ascend to unprecedented heights. His next move was to take a teaching position at Rice University at 16. Oh my goodness. And that Experience started to reveal some complexities of his character. Despite his profound knowledge and unmatched intellect, teaching proved to be challenging for him. At Rice, Sidis was not just the youngest faculty member, but he was younger than most of the students. Right. Yeah. And I think so often people think that, oh, if you're smart, you can teach. And that's not, teaching is a skill set. It's not necessarily just having a bunch of knowledge in there. Right. It's the ability to teach is its own skill set. That's absolutely true. And in addition to this, there was the age difference coupled with his reserved nature. And he wasn't a big socializer. And it made difficult for him to bond with the students or command the authoritative presence typically expected in a classroom. So teaching, it appeared, did not provide the connection and satisfaction that Sidis was hoping for. I imagine faculty mixers were interesting too. Yeah. The rest of the faculty enjoying hors d'oeuvres and, and he's sitting in the corner with his push pop. So he decides to go back to Harvard and throw himself into law school. He wants to become a lawyer, but... Didn't you say he was a reserved nature kind of guy? Yeah, and and so not a good fit. And because of his um, analytical abilities, it just just did not fit well. The formal structure of the legal system didn't sit well with Sidis's boundless curiosity and his expansive intellect. Law demands precision and adherence to established precedents, not something that he was good at. For Sidis, his engagements with academia and law weren't merely career pursuits. These were attempts to find a place in the, in the world, a right. purpose that, that could, could provide him some sort of emotional um, solace. The expectations placed on him due to his genius weighed very heavily on him, and the public scrutiny of his life did not help. And this is about the time that he starts getting into trouble. Let me set the stage. It was 1919. The whole political scene was pretty heated. There was an intense fear of communism, Mm. 
and radical left ideas spreading in the U.S., and the government was super paranoid about it. So people were getting arrested for having leftist views or even just associating with people who had leftist views. Ah, freedom. By this time, he was deeply connected to social issues. So there was this rally in 1919 protesting the war uh, and promoting socialist ideas, and Sidis was there standing up for what he believed in. But given the political climate, uh, being at that rally was very risky. The mm. authorities didn't take kindly to such gatherings, especially those with socialist undertones. So Sidis got arrested. And that was a big deal. Yeah, I would imagine someone with an IQ who is obviously so intelligent publicly saying, I side with these ideals, mm -hmm. was exactly what the government didn't want. They didn't want that. So here he was. He was a kid genius a decade earlier, and now he's looking at 18 months in jail. But Citus's parents were very well connected and resourceful. So instead of letting their son serve time in a conventional jail, which would have been tough and even dangerous for somebody that had been so coddled and pampered mm. for his whole life. They pulled some strings. They managed to have him placed in a sanatorium that, oh, by the way, was run by his own dad. Oh, <laughs> handy. Yeah. And, and a sanatorium back then was like a medical facility used for long-term illnesses. For Citus, it was definitely a more comfortable and safer environment than, yeah. than a jail cell, but it was still very difficult. Sanatorium. I always picture a Kellogg-style building with rocking chairs on the front porch. Yeah, on the outside, it looks peaceful. And then they start jamming ice picks up your nose. Oh. So this episode at the uh, sanatorium had a lasting impact on William. It was one of the reasons for him to step away from the limelight and further cemented his desire for a low-key private life. He just, at this point, wanted to be left alone. Fair. Craving anonymity, he worked odd jobs that uh, didn't require him to use his immense intellect. Oh, so he, he kind of like hid that way. Yeah. He hid by not using his super smarts in the workforce. Right. And he often would work under an alias. Also, at the same time, under an alias, he wrote books ranging from an exhaustive history of the United States to a discussion on cosmology, Ooh. where he eerily predicted the existence of black holes, which was something that wasn't a revelation until decades later. So he was just working. He was like laying bricks and working as a plumber under an assumed name. And under a pseudonym, writing these very dense books on very deep subjects. And he seemed to be pretty happy. It's what people were saying anyway that, that worked with him at the time. But in an ironic twist of fate in 1937, his wish for obscurity was, was shattered. A, a New Yorker journalist sought him out and did an article on him, thrusting him back into the spotlight and pa painting him in um, an unflattering way. The boy genius now, you know, working manual labor. It infuriated Citus, and he sued the New Yorker and emerged victorious. Good. You know, there's nothing wrong with trades, and I feel no. like trades are so wildly underappreciated and undervalued in our society, and the fact that he found joy in working this way, like, fuck you, I'm sorry. <laughs> so he sues the New Yorker, and he wins, but his triumph was short-lived because a year after the courtroom 
victory, a brain hemorrhage, claimed his life. Now, it's tempting to break Sidis's life down into a tragic narrative of a uh, prodigy, a boy wonder, a young genius crushed under the weight of expectations from society. Yet again, those who truly knew him, especially in his later years, saw him as a happy, contented man. It seems as though while working odd jobs under assumed names and living anonymously, William Sidis finally found the peace he was looking for. This is a really interesting thing. Like, And you and I were talking about this the other day, like what is success mm. and how you cannot define success for someone else. Success to any individual is different from success from someone else. And his being anonymous and working odd jobs, that was his success. I've always felt, I I came to this realization uh, years ago that success really, to me anyway, and I think to most people, distills down to one thing, and that's inner peace. Somebody says, I want, you know, a million dollars. No, you want the inner peace that the security of a million dollars could give you. You want fame. No, you want inner peace that that confidence you get from being famous. Well, I think that's a stretch. Well, maybe. I think it, some people just want to be on MTV. Or on that pod show that you watch. That's not about fame, sweetie. Oh? That's about finding love. <laughs> I stand corrected. So William's journey points to the complexity of human existence, just like you're saying, that intelligence, no matter how profound, is just one facet of life. Mm. So in the end, when we talk about William James Sidis, which is rare because most people don't even know who he is, we're not just talking about a genius. We're talking about a human being who had dreams and emotions and struggles just like anybody. We can't just label people and put them in boxes. Everyone's got their own story, their own journey. Citus's journey might have had a lot of twists and turns, but he lived it on his own terms. And that's something that we can all take from this. We can all learn from this. Everyone's looking for their place in the world, and it's okay if it takes a little while to find it. My source information, interesting engineering, NPR, and a book by Amy Wallace called The Prodigy. Very interesting. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, five things found during cleanup after music festivals. Number five, a body. That, that'll put a real damper on any outdoor activity, really. I guess it's a good way to go if you enjoyed yourself. Number four, cannabis and cocaine. Duh. Number three, a robin in a cowboy hat. Now, was it like making a nest in the hat or was it wearing the hat? It was a baby robin and I think it was being contained in the hat. Oh, okay. Well, that's just adorable. Although a robin wearing a cowboy hat would be equally adorable. Number two, a whole raw chicken. (laughs) And number one, two tortoises. And a double-ended dildo. Now, Different campsites. Different campsites. Yeah. We want to point that out. Heather Wright says, good morning, Kat and JG. I love listening to your podcast. And I just heard the episode, The Cat Box Made Me Do It, <laughs> where Kat talked about the parasite that controls the brains of mice and possibly humans. While studies have shown that there is likely no real effect on human brains, I have another theory about cats and human relationships. Oh, Yeah. I'm a cat person, but I have known plenty of non-cat people. In my experience, cats always gravitate towards those who don't identify as cat people, but especially towards those with cat allergies. The people who try to avoid them the most, the cats seek out. Obviously, this is because cats aim to take over the world. Mm -hmm. They already have the cat lovers. Now they must convert the others. I would love to hear if you've noticed a similar phenomenon. In your lives. Thanks again and keep flying the freak flag. Much love from Heather. I have noticed that my, you know, my sister is deathly allergic to 
cat dander. But whenever she's out in public and a cat is walking around, they go right for her. So your theory, Heather, I think um, it has legs. It tracks. We got a message on Instagram. When Kat was talking about Huska Castle in 571, she mentioned it was built over a gate to hell. For some reason, I launched into song singing, We built this castle on a rotten hole. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, sounds like your brain works the same way mine does. Yeah, we're all the same. No, you fit right in. Yep, part of the freak family. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. All right, your turn. Tell me a story. In a manuscript dated 1377, a German monk named Johannes from Switzerland, of course he was, mentioned the emergence of playing cards and various card games associated with them. But by the 1400s, playing cards were often discussed in religious sermons alongside dice games as an example of denounced gambling activities. I've actually heard a deck of cards referred to um, as the devil's pasteboards. That's right. Now, historical evidence confirms the existence and use of a 52-card deck during this period. Playing cards that I'm familiar with typically consist of a deck of 52 cards divided into four suits, hearts, diamonds, clubs, and spades. Each suit contains 13 cards, including an ace, numbered cards from 2 to 10, and three face cards, jack, queen, king. But playing cards have undergone a remarkable transformation over several centuries, traversing different countries and evolving into the modern deck 
of carts that we're familiar with today, retaining remnants of the places it came and grew from. The origin of playing cards is highly debated, though many believe it can be traced back to ancient China around the 9th century during the Tang Dynasty. From there, they spread to various parts of the world, including the Middle East and Europe. Their history seems to have started somewhere in the East and may have been imported to Europe by gypsies, crusaders, or traders. But as I said, it's impossible to know for sure. The popularity of playing cards continued to rise toward the end of the 14th century and into the 15th century. European cards introduced the concept of using four suits, swords, clubs, cups, and coins. These suits, sometimes referred to as Latin suits, may have originated from tarot cards and can still be found on some Italian and Spanish playing cards in present times. The reason for the standard deck of 52 cards is believed to be influenced by historical factors, and some attribute the configuration to the seasons. 52 cards represents 52 weeks in a year. That's what I always thought. The four colors represent the four seasons. The 13 cards in a suit represent 13 weeks in each season. In Europe, playing cards gained popularity, as I said, during the 14th century. And evidence suggests that games involving playing cards really started to emerge during this time, featuring icons that represented coins that later appeared on Western European playing cards. One theory suggests that playing cards may have traveled from China to Europe through Egypt from the Mamluk period. Decks from that era depicted goblets, gold coins, swords, and polo sticks, reflecting the interests of that aristocracy. <laughs> polo sticks. I have the king of polo sticks. <laughs> but since polo was pretty unknown in Europe at the time, these symbols were later changed to batons or staves, which along with swords, cups, and coins became the traditional suit marks on Italian and Spanish cards. In the late 14th century Italy, court cards typically included a mounted king, a seated and crowned queen, and a knave. The knave represented a royal servant. The mounted king. I, I had a deck of cards kind of like that once. Yeah. Did you find it in the forest? I did. Yeah. yeah. It's where all the porn was in the woods. In fact, we called it Porn Forest. <laughs> Please don't leave porn in the woods. That's, that's not what kids need. Plus, it makes the porn all soggy. Spanish cards followed a different pattern, featuring a king, knight, and knave with no queens. Spanish decks also lacked a 10, 8s, and 9s, resulting in a 40-card deck. Initially, playing cards in Italy were exquisite. They were hand-painted luxury items exclusively owned by the upper classes. But as card playing gained popularity and more cost-effective production methods were developed, playing cards became more accessible to a wider audience. Now, as playing cards became more widely available, they reached Germany, where their popularity among soldiers facilitated rapid spread. The Germans revolutionized card production through their innovative woodcutting and engraving techniques. It enabled mass production of sorts. And eventually, Germany became the world's leading playing card manufacturer, exporting decks through Western Europe. But the images on the cards started to reflect rural German life. Hearts, leaves, acorns, and bells. And customized decks featuring various symbols became all the rage. You could have decks featuring suits of animals, kitchen utensils, and appliances, <laughs> which I love. I've got the four of stoves. 
I'll swap you for the king of potato mashers. <laughs> that reminds me of my favorite meme ever. You remember the one. Yeah, yeah, I do. Me, I think I'll open this drawer. <laughs> potato masher, the fuck you will. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> You can do this. You can do this. I know you're an aficionado of potato masher humor. Oh, God. Okay. During the... <laughs> One hour later. During the 15th century, the French introduced the iconic symbols for the four suits commonly used today. Hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. <laughs> the French also preferred a king, queen, and knave as their court cards. Oh, God. Oh, the potato masher. Okay. The French during this period also divided the four suits into two red and two blacks, using simplified and clearer symbols, and this innovation further streamlined and expedited card production. As a result, the French ultimately surpassed the Germans as the world's playing card powerhouse, which I bet you didn't know was a thing. Did the French taunt them? Oh, you know they did. Your mother was a hamster and your father smells of... Potato mashers. <laughs> Manufacturing paper became more advanced and printing techniques got a boost with Gutenberg's printing press in 1440. And this meant that the old school woodcut techniques done by hand, which were slower and costlier, got replaced with much more efficient production methods. Now, during this time... The French were paying special attention to the court cards. In the late 1500s, French manufacturers started naming the court cards after famous characters from literary epics like the Bible and other books. This gave rise to the tradition of associating specific court cards with well-known names. For example, the kings were likened to figures like King David, who would have been the spade, Alexander the Great, club, Charlemagne, hearts, and Julius Caesar, diamonds. The queens were attributed to characters such as the Greek goddess Athena, Judith, Rachel, and Argyne, spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs, respectively. As for the knaves, they were often represented characters like Lahire, Ogier, the knight of Charlemagne, Hector, the hero of Troy, and Lancelot. Well, they were all over the place, oh, weren't yeah. they? Oh, yeah. They got way into it. The familiar postures, clothing, and accessories associated with modern playing cards can be traced back to these characters. And this French pattern, used widely around the world, played a significant role in standardizing the modern deck of cards. However, heavy taxes in France got so burdensome that some of the major playing card makers moved their operations to Belgium. And this move had some interesting consequences. Playing card manufacturers began to pop up in new parts of Europe, including in England. And it was in England that we finally got the name for the suits that we use today. The English really were like, okay, we're going to use a little from this Italian deck and a little bit from this French deck, and we like how Charlemagne looks over here, so let's do that. Now, often the Ace of Spades stands out in a deck of cards, and it gets customized. Now, how did that happen? It was at this point in the evolution of playing cards that this came to be. There was a new law that said English cards couldn't leave the factory without makers proving that they had paid their taxes. So... In the beginning, they had to hand-stamp the Ace of Spades to prove that that tax had been paid. 
Wow. Sorry, I sounded like Owen Wilson there. Wow. Wow. In 1828, it was decided a special ace of spades would need to be purchased from the commissioner of stamp duties. And these unique cards would have, (laughs) I know, these unique cards would typically have elaborate designs along with the manufacturer's name. This is a tradition that continues even to this day, even after card makers were approved to start printing their own ace of spades again in 1862. Yeah. Bicycle. Says so right on the card. Right, exactly. Now, around 1860 in the U.S., Thomas De La Rue, the founder of the De La Rue Printing Company, discovered ways to increase production and reduce costs of playing cards. This led to a standardization of designs that we're familiar with today, replacing the unique and elaborate artwork that was often seen on playing cards back in the day. De La Rue also introduced the double-ended court card, which eliminated the need for players to flip their hands over to reveal that they had court cards in their in their poker game or whatever. It was also around this time that jokers were introduced into the deck. They were initially called the Best Bower, and the Joker served as the highest trump card in the popular game of Euchre. It was in 1875 that the Joker began being used as a wild card in poker. The New York Consolidated Card Company played a significant role by popularizing corner indices in English playing cards. These indices made it easier for players to hold and identify your hand by only slightly fanning the cards. It's the, the, the upper corner right. guy. It hasn't always been there. It makes a lot of sense. And the fact that it took this long. Anyway, although another printing company had already printed cards with indices in 1864, it was the Consolidated Card Company that patented this design. These cards were initially known as squeezer decks. Because <laughs> you could squeeze your yeah, cards together. Yeah. I found some of those in the woods, too. Oh, God. And they were eventually, though not immediately, embraced. I don't know why someone would be against it, though. And this is how the deck many of us know came to be. Now, of course, this is an abridged history. Playing cards have been around for generations. So the full details of their evolution, it's probably never going to be known. Nonetheless, I hope that you enjoyed this journey through how the modern playing card deck came to be. So the modern deck of cards that we're using right now, what we consider to be the modern deck, is maybe 150 years old-ish, 100 100 years old, 120. It it really depends on at what point you consider it to have become the modern deck. The squeezer deck, I would say, probably, just because I enjoy saying it. Sure, yeah, so 1860s. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that these used to be like handcrafted, beautiful pieces of art, really, and now you just get them for free on a cruise ship. (laughs) Yes, you do. We take full advantage of that, too, I'd like to add. Yeah. I got my information from Shuffled Ink, Vanishing Ink Magic, and The Guardian. Want to play cards tonight? Yes, I do. Okay. Haggis is continuing to improve. He's uh, bumping into a lot of things, but that's really not that unusual for Haggis uh, because he really couldn't see even when he had eyes. But uh, he's finding his way around, and he's up and about, and he's doing extremely well. Thank you for all of your thoughts and your comments and your messages. We've got a Haggis update Zoom coming up uh, for patrons. That's on Sunday, and we hope that you can join us for it. Yeah, if you're not a member of uh, the Inner Circle of Freaks or the Order of Freaks on Patreon, join us for the Zoom call and enjoy all kinds of stuff like ad-free episodes and 
you know. You can find the link at theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.